Welcome. You're listening to Mark and Jackie's Wildlife and Photography Podcast. Explore and learn about the natural world and how to take pictures. This episode is all about wildlife and nature. Understanding the natural world is important. It's what makes life on this planet possible. Our podcast gives you insights into just how complicated and fascinating that world is. Episode 9, Birds and the Bees. It's summer where we live, and all around us there are flowers coming out. They're so beautiful at this time of year. Surrounded by flowers, gorgeous colours, wonderful. But have you ever wondered why plants produce flowers? Maybe it's for us. Maybe it's so that we say, oh, aren't they beautiful? Maybe it's the fact that we plant them and they grow and they produce flowers for them. I'm sorry to upset you, but that's not why plants produce flowers. They produce flowers because it's a way of getting pollinated. Pollination is the reproductive method used by plants, especially angiospermum plants or magnophota plants. They're the two groups that produce pollen and then will produce seeds from that pollen. The flowers that you see in the main have male and female parts. The male stamen, which support the anthers, that produces the pollen. And lower in the plant normally are the capils, and that's the female part of the flower. And that's where the pollen is received, normally from other individuals, and the seeds are then grown there and produced. A lot of the plants that flower produce nectar as well. It's a sweet substance, and the reason they produce nectar is to attract insects, birds, mammals, to come to the plant, to come to the flower, and move the pollen from flower to flower. There are various strategies that plants use to attract pollinators to them. And that's the topic of this podcast. Pollination is important, not only to the plants themselves. After all, without pollination, most plants wouldn't be able to reproduce, therefore wouldn't produce seed, wouldn't be able to carry on. It's also vitally important to us humans. After all, without the seeds that plants produce and the fruits that sometimes surround those seeds, we would starve to death. The subject of pollination has been studied for hundreds of years. There was a book first published in 1793 by Christian Conrad Spengler. I will tell you the name of the book. The original title is in German, and my schoolboy German is not good enough to produce it, so I'm not even going to attempt to uh, say it in German. But in English, it's the secret of nature discovered in the structure and pollination of flowers. So first published in 1793. And 70 years later, it's very likely that Charles Darwin knew and referred to Spengler when he wrote his three volumes on orchids, published from 1862. The reason we think he knew about Spengler's work is that an annotated copy of the book was found amongst Darwin's possessions. So let's get into the science of pollination. There are basically two methods that plants use to pollinate. There are the self-pollinators and the rest. The rest are broken down into two further groups. 
There's the abiotic, and they're plants that use physical rather than biological methods to distribute their pollen. And there's the biotic, that's relating to or living organisms. And these group of plants use living organisms to transfer their pollen from the male anthers of one plant to the female capsules of another. So let's talk about self-pollination first. There are a few truly self-pollinating, that's without wind or mechanical pollination. Peanut and soya bean and orchids are probably the best examples of self-pollinators. Most of our cereal crops, like wheat, barley and oats and rice, are all self-pollinators. So vast swathes of our farmlands are filled with plants that all self-pollinate. They don't need outside vectors to help them move the pollen around. The pollen moves within the plant itself or within the flower and they can then be self-pollinated. These plants have learnt to survive and reproduce where other pollination methods are not available, either from a lack of insects or they're unable to pollinate because of high mountains, deserts or cold climates. So they're the self-pollinators. There's also a class of wind pollinators. Now wind pollinators are used by grasses and trees and some flowering plants. About 12% of the world's flowering plants are wind pollinated. Economically important trees like pines, spruces, firs and many hardwoods are wind pollinated. Nut trees like walnuts and pecans and pistachios are all wind pollinators. They normally don't have flowers. They normally, well they do have flowers but not ones that we would recognise perhaps as a nice open flower that you can smell and enjoy in a garden. They produce little tiny female flowers and very often the male flowers are catkins. They don't have any perfume, they don't have any nectar and their stamens and stigmas are exposed to the air current to catch and distribute pollen. They don't normally have flower petals for instance. After all, wind pollinated plants aren't focused on attracting pollinating organisms. What they do is to produce large quantities of light dry pollen from very small plain flowers that can be carried on the wind. The female structures on wind pollinated plants are adapted to capture these passing pollen from the air, but a majority of the pollen goes to waste. The pollen that's produced by these plants is a very low nutritional benefit to insects, having low protein content, and usually will only be gathered by them when other pollen sources are scarce. However, this release of massive amounts of windborne pollen into the atmosphere, normally in the springtime, wrecks havoc with many a hay fever sufferer. The pure amounts of pollen cause allergic reactions, which causes untold suffering to those poor sufferers. Water pollination is another form of pollinator. Now, water pollination, obviously, you probably need to be, as you can guess, an aquatic plant. The pollen floats on the water surface, drifting until it contacts the flowers. Only about 2% of pollination is done by hydrophily. And this water-aided pollination occurs mainly in water weeds and pond weeds. Most aquatic plants that you would see coming up and growing, plant, uh, growing flowers on the surface of the water are in fact insect pollinated. 
and the flowers emerge from the water into the air for that very reason. Right, we're going to talk now about insects and other mammals. This is by far the biggest group of pollinators. And globally, about 1 in 10 animals act as a pollinator. And they service about 88% of plants. And there are some 352,000 species of flowering plants. In order of the numbers, we're going to talk about lizards first. Now, lizard pollination is quite rare. It tends to happen on islands where there is no other pollinator has made it to the island. All the lizards and reptiles have been there for a longer time than some of the birds, say. And it's mainly geckos and skinks that form these pollination. The geckos and skinks come to the flowers and they gather nectar because it's a sweet, sugary syrup. And in doing so, they will transfer the pollen because it sticks to their skin. And when they go to the next flower, the pollen is transferred from flower to flower to flower. Now, the evidence about lizards and their pollination and the, how much they actually play in this whole scenario is not very well understood. And research is underway, and even more research is probably needed before we actually have an understanding of the importance of lizards and reptiles in pollination. Now in mammals, of course, birds are mammals. Many species of birds have long beaks that can access the nectar in the bottom of the long tubular flowers. The species include banquets and sunbirds and hummingbirds. Now hummingbirds are native to the Americas and there are about 360 species of hummingbird. And hummingbirds are very specialised nectivores. This co-evolution implies morphological traits of the hummingbirds, such as bill length and bill curvature, and the body mass. These are all related or correlated to the traits of the plants. That's because they've evolved together, and as the plant has produced a long tubular flower over millennia, the hummingbirds are followed by getting a beak that can actually get to the nectar. Some species of birds don't bother with unusual bill shapes. What they do is that they tend to peck and they pierce the bottom of the flower to release the stored nectar. This includes warblers, flower peckers and verdins. And birds with even sturdier bills, such as finches, tend to nibble away at the bottom of the flower, crushing the bloom and release the nectar that way. A good example of this is the swift parrot which is a broad-tailed parrot found in southeastern Australia. Swift parrots breed in Tasmania during the summer and then migrates north to southeastern mainland Australia. Now the swift parrots are mainly nectar feeders and they feed on the flowers of the southern blue gum or the swamp or black gum. This specialisation is very rare in nature because it means that they are dependent on being able to find one particular flower. As we move to the mammals, there are also mammals that specialise in gathering nectar. Sticking in Australia, there are things called sugar gliders, which are very cute little mammals. They are found in Australia, and I said the yellow-bellied glider gets almost all of its food by foraging for nectar. And in doing so, as it puts its head in the, the blooms of the flower, it will transfer pollen on its fur from flower to flower. There's also another marsupial 
in Australia called the honey possum. And that's a very tiny little marsupial. And that feeds on nectar and pollen from a very diverse range of flowering plants. Again, found in southwest Australia. Most of the mammal pollination is done because the mammals themselves are out for the sweet treat of nectar. And without that nectar being produced by the plant, they wouldn't go near a a flower. So they forage for the nectar, and in doing so, help the plant to set seed. By far the biggest pollinator of flowers, for mammals anyway, are bats. They're estimated to be about 530 species of plant that is pollinated purely by bats. Nectar-eating bats have acquired very specialist adaptations. For instance, they're found mainly in the tropics, and they need night-opening flowers, obviously, because most bat species fly at night. The flowers themselves have also done what they can to attract the bats. They very often have very large, very light-coloured flowers that open at night. They tend to be very, very scented and have lots of nectar advertise the fact to the bat so that the bat will come in and transfer its pollen. Now bats themselves have got excellent spatial memory and they will visit specific plants time and time again because they can remember where the plants grow in relation to where they roost. Now we come on to the largest possible group of pollinators and that's the insects. I'm sure when I say insects you immediately think of bees but they're not the only pollinators. Don't forget that apart from bees there are things like wasps, beetles, butterflies, flies and night-flying moths and they all help to pollinate flowers. In the UK about 70% of our 1500 or so native plants are insect pollinated. About three quarters of our native trees that would include things like hawthorn, cherry, plum and rowan are all pollinated by insects. They flower and produce nectar that attract the insect pollinators. DEFRA, which is the Department of Environmental Food and Rural Affairs here in the UK, estimate that there are around 1,500 species of pollinators in the UK, although that number is widely disputed. The estimate really does range from authorities in this field from somewhere between two and 6,000 species of pollinating insect. So if we're going to talk about insects, I suppose we have to talk about bees, really. After all, that's the one we all think of, the buzzy, buzzy bee. So maybe we think about honeybees. But don't forget, they're not just the only species of bee. There are bumblebees. There are stingless bees. There are mason bees, carpenter bees, leafcutter bees, even sweat bees. Here in the UK, there are 270 species of bee, but the honeybee and the bumblebee are the ones that we're probably most accustomed to see buzzing around flowers. They're the ones you see going in and out of flowers, collecting nectar and pollen. The honeybee is probably an introduced bee, and it's the most numerous, so we'll probably be doing the most pollination. But it's actually not the most efficient pollinator that we have. Research has found that the wild pollinators, of which, as I said, there's somewhere between 2,000 and 6,000 in the UK, are about as twice as effective as a honeybee in pollination, especially in cash crops for farmers. And that's oilseed, rape, coffee, almonds, tomatoes and strawberries. Things like the honeybee and the bumblebee 
They pack pollen into a pollen basket or a corbicula. They do this by regurgitating nectar and sticking the pollen grains and attaching them to pollen baskets on their hind legs. Whereas leaf cutter and mining bees are what are known as dry packers. And they still pollen, again in a basket called a scopy, on their hind legs. And that's more useful to plants because once you've mixed the pollen with regurgitated nectar, which is what the bumblebee and the honeybee do, it's useless to the plant. The plant can't make use of it. It can't be transferred to the next plant. The only way that honeybees and bumblebees actually transfer pollen is by it sticking to the hairs on their thorax, on their head. The pollen that they've collected is no longer available to the, to the plant. Whereas other species of bees, say leafcutter and minor bees, the pollen tends to come out of the baskets on their legs and therefore it's of much more use to the plants. Don't forget either, as 25% of the UK's bees don't actually collect pollen. They're what they call cuckoo bees. So they don't actually need to collect pollen or nectar to survive. Honeybees are in serious decline. And they have been for many years. Things like insecticides, like neocotoids, have decimated many of our colonies of bee. The Verona mite, which jumped from Asian honeybees, is causing devastation in hives. The mite tends to suck the uh, life from the bees. This damages the hives of both amateur and commercial honey producers. There's also a thing called uh, colony collapse disorder. And that has significant economic losses. And it also affects our agricultural crops. After all, our crops are dependent on these pollination worldwide. Take an example in the US, the almond crop. Now about 80% of the world's almonds come from California's fertile Central Valley. Each season, about two-thirds of the United States commercial honeybee population spend February in the toxic chemical soup of California's Central Valley, fertilising almonds one blossom at a time. I say toxic chemical soup, and that's because the almond crop themselves are actually sprayed with insecticides. And these insecticides are not very good for the bees. They're also sprayed with herbicides. So it tends to also affect and kill the bees. About 30% or more of the bees that go to California's Central Valley die each year. And that mirrors roughly national statistics. Although in the latest statistics, the April 2019 to 2020, it was estimated that 43.7% of all US hives were lost. That's not just in California's Central Valley, that's across the whole of the USA. And we're not much better in the UK, to be honest. Here there's a retailer and supermarket store called Marks and Spencers. And it decided to do good for the environment by putting 30 million honeybees into the British countryside. However, this goodwill gesture actually backfired after conservationists warned that the initiative could damage the ecosystem and deprive wild pollinators of valuable food. They were going to place up to a thousand beehives on 25 farms to produce single estate honey for their customers. It's sort of a whoopsie. They thought by releasing 30 million honeybees into the British countryside, it would be a wonderful thing to do. Unfortunately, without some pre-planning and also some more knowledge, it can be a very dangerous thing to do. 
This free pollination service is worth about £1.8 billion per year to British farmers, by the way. The global honey industry uh, for 2020 produced $9.2 billion and it gives about 1.4 billion farming jobs worldwide. Three quarters of the world's food supply rely on bees to pollinate it. 100 crop species that feed 90% of the world's population. 70 are pollinated by bees, both domesticated and wild. It's something to think about that we can't afford to live without these pollinating insects. And there have been lots of campaigns that have come out. Save our bees and the pollinator strategy. The problem is, is that all these good intentions don't actually go anywhere. They publish lots of papers, good words to do, but they never actually come to much. All we need to do as a population is to bring to the politicians and public attention the fact that bees are disappearing eight times faster than other mammals and birds. They're important to us, not just to see them buzzing around flowers, but as pollinators that feed us. If we do nothing, we could actually be starving to death because we can't get the fruits and vegetables that we need to eat. Maybe you can do your bit. If you've got a green space, why not plant some insect-friendly plants? After all, it's the plants and their flowers that produce food. If there's more food available, bees and other insects will multiply. There is one word of caution about this. Um, according to some of the latest research, uh, garden centres are selling bee-friendly plants. And they are bee-friendly. They produce lovely flowers that bees actually love to feed on. However, when they're tested, they are, a lot of these plants are actually contaminated with massive amounts of chemicals that's needed to grow them in large quantities. And it can actually be very toxic for a bee to go near these plants. So maybe the safest way, if you want plants for bees and insects in your garden, grow them from seed. And then at least you know they've not been sprayed with any insecticide. You could put up an insect hotel, uh, wooden huts that hang on your wall, and they have little tubes inside or fur cones and things. You put them up and that provides somewhere for things like leafcutter and minor bees to nest and lay their eggs. It also provides places where eggs can be laid that can overwinter. If you put it on a south-facing wall, you will help insects. You could also, of course, join or support an organisation. There are things like the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, and that's bumblebeeconservation.org, or the Royal Entomological Society, and that's r-o-y-e-n-s-o-c.co.uk. One of our favourites, Bug Life, spelt as it sounds, b-u-g-l-i-f-e.org.uk. If you've got a chance, go and visit these websites. They'll give you an insight into what you can do, how you can help, and also they'll tell you about the latest research and what's going on. There are things you can do. Put some plants in your green space if you can, or join an organisation and learn more about insects and pollination. Next time you're out and about and you see a flower, take a closer look at it and think about what it actually means 
and how that flower has come about, how an insect possibly has pollinated it, how that flower has produced seeds that have been either distributed onto the ground where it grows or have been collected and re-sown. Pollination is a wonderful thing, and without it and the flowers and the nectar, many of our insects and some of our mammals and birds wouldn't survive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode about birds and bees and pollination. My name is Mark Bloomfield, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to a wildlife and photography podcast produced by M&J Bloomfield. For more information and details about us and our work, visit our website at mnjbloomfield.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Punishin, wishin' luck.